Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Nordic Arts Agency podcast, a podcast connecting emerging and established international artists and art influencers from around the globe. I'm your host, Juliet, a British expat, art historian and gallerist based in Sweden. I created this podcast to share conversations with artists or art influencers whose artwork or insight inspires me personally. I'm here with Eva Davidson, my co-host, art historian and visual gallery assistant. We're recording today, once again, in our new gallery location, which opened in March this year in the centre of Malmo City. Today is, for us, a very special event, as for months and weeks we've been planning, installing and talking about our current sculpture exhibition, Into the Light. And having been living with the sculpture in the gallery for some time, they all feel fabulously familiar. So to have sculptor Hugh Chapman in the gallery with us today, and to be able to introduce him to collectors in our event this evening is something we've been looking forward to. Now, I've never met Hugh in person, and neither have you ever. No, that's correct. So I'm delighted to be able to introduce sculptor Hugh Chapman to the Nordic Art Agency Gallery, to the podcast. Welcome to Sweden, Hugh. Thanks very much, Eva. Thank you, Julia. It's lovely to be here. We're so happy to have you here, Hugh. You've been with the gallery since 2021 and been part of two previous group exhibitions at the Nordic Arts Agency. And since we've been exhibiting your work at our new gallery space at Stora Newgarten as part of the international spring pop-up. And we are recording this podcast on the ground floor, surrounded by six of your bronze and polished stainless steel sculptures. And this is actually the largest group of your work ever to be shown together in the same exhibition. So it's an impressive body of work and they set a certain tone to the exhibition, as well as creating visual dialogues with the different artists on the walls. Currently, it's paired with Catherine Ludo's minimal resin and gold leaf works, and previously with abstract painter Sarah Dad's bold layered collared arches and acrylic. They also reflect the lights and the movement coming in from the large windows, bringing in or reworking the life out there into reflections of light and curve. What are your thoughts, Hugh, on the new space and on the exhibition? It's quite beautiful. The light is most favourable. I feel the gallery space is quite calming, particularly with the influence of Catherine Ludo's resin works. This is quite a large collection of my work and quite diverse. All of the work speaks very clearly of my intentions. Uh, We're in the presence of Catherine Ludo's work. I think in a lot of ways shares ambitions of my own in a sense of mindfulness and a sense of spirituality or well-being. I agree. Uh, They definitely bring out different aspects of your sculpture. It's interesting because it's so very important what one's artwork is uh, surrounded by. I think it can heavily influence the way it is seen. It's a a wonderful thing to see. It's definitely been an exploration for me, having installed the work, and we did that fantastic photo shoot where just your work was present in the gallery, and then to see how it's evolved as we've added different works around it. And also to watch collectors' different responses. I think there's been a lot of engagement from different kinds of people, depending on the artwork behind it, Mm. because they see different attributes and elements to it. But I do agree, this pairing now, the, we talked earlier about the Zen aspect of Catherine's work. She, she's very much a reductive element of nature in her work. And I think there is so many of those shared parallels with your work. It feels incredibly natural to, and balanced to, to show this, your sculpture with her resin works. 
And tonight, Hugh, is a really special event in the gallery where we'll host an evening for architects, landscape and interior designers, lighting designers and collectors who will get to know you and your practice and really immerse themselves in your sculpture. It must feel fabulous to be out of the studio, finally, after the pandemic, and to be able to engage again with people and your work in an open forum. Absolutely. It's, it's quite liberating. I think artists have little reason to go out a lot of the time anyway, and uh, I think we all kind of entered our own sort of sheltered worlds a bit tighter than we would have done pre-pandemic. It's wonderful to be here with my work. It feels like a small victory for us all in some ways that we're sat around the table <laughs> in an art gallery. I couldn't imagine a, a, a better way to have exited what has been a horrific situation for all of us. I'm excited about tonight. I'm excited to get to talk to some people in front of my work. I think that is a really important part of being an artist. I think feedback ultimately is so very important. With an online exhibition, people can't get a real sense of work, but equally they can't meet the artist. Art is a representation of a person or a person's soul, understand the core of a person and really understand why they do what they're doing. Uh, context is so important with art. You're a sculptor. You make three-dimensional objects. Mm. And for you to see people move around mm. and look at your work, walk around in a space where there are multiple of your pieces, mm. um, that must be so special. And some of the sculptures here are also maquettes that can be made in monumental scale and placed in architectural settings or landscapes. And in the renderings you've created, of which we are exhibiting some examples in the gallery, you can see them imagined in settings very much aesthetically characterized by man-made structures, modern buildings in concrete. Um, one of the renderings on display you could even call sterile. In these environments, your undulating sculptures break the straight angles and the geometric configuration of the landscape without looking out of place. And there's something almost of the divine or metaphysical that reminds us of the invisible forces of nature that despite the urban landscape are at work all around us. So how do you decide which ideas are suitable for monumental scale? My intention is that the maquettes should appear to be monumental from the outset and it should feel that way as much in a sense of uh, dynamics or an expression of dynamics. It's more like a compression. These thoughts are really condensed into the small maquette, but the ambition is much grander. Through talking to Juliet early on in our working relationship, uh, she encouraged me to actively demonstrate my means of thinking about this. Uh, and originally I've done that with these renders. The renders are interesting because they're of my choice. Um, the real world, however, is different. You have to work with where you're given. So it might be that in reality, none of my maquettes might be used at a uh, monumental size because they don't agree with the space that is preordained for them. However, there are a lot of spaces in the modern architectural world where they are very sterile and it's almost like a blank canvas. So your options then are almost limitless and really just down to the person that you're making these decisions with. I think it is very important to share my observations of the beauty of the natural world in built-up areas. 
I think it can be uh, an antidote to what can be a very static living environment. Monumental sculpture can be brilliant at disrupting or complementing very bland areas of domestic living. I think that's one of their best areas. I think with modern architecture, one has to be very careful in particular because modern architecture is so highly considered that they are in effect sculptural forms themselves. To put a sculpture in front of a building that is very, very strong in its own right would be a conflict. Um, but that's not to say that there wouldn't be an area alongside that building where the, there would be a narrative between the sculpture and the building also. Yes, yeah, so you express in your short film, which makes up part of our current video installation, that you feel as an artist or as, or as humans even, that we have a responsibility to contribute to the language of beauty in the world. Um, and public art also holds these democratic values that go hand in hand with the ambition of offering beauty and art experiences to a larger audience. One of the quotes in your exhibition catalogue reads, my dream is to make monumental sculpture that can harmonise with space, be it natural or man-made sculpture that can engage with the public, enhance the space in which it resides, and in doing so, enhance the quality of people's lives. Well, that quote really made me understand that my ambition was a very valid one. I think beauty and art are fundamental tools within uh, religion and the power of religion to express the divine. These means, these mechanisms, the power of beauty is within music and, and all the corners of developed culture. It's very, very important that we do not lose sight of it amongst what is quite a manufactured world where I feel pace of change and desire for profit tends to remove beauty from the spaces in which we live. So public art, public sculpture is a huge responsibility. One has to make sure one gets it right. In getting it right, it can benefit everyone without favour or compromise and has the ability to bring art to the public forum where people might witness it who would never have or had the opportunity to go to an art gallery. Uh, when I grew up in portion, the public art I felt was left wanting. There was nothing for me there. I didn't understand it at the time, but there was a need, I think, to try and fill it. But I didn't have the mechanism. I have that mechanism now. A really important part of that is understanding the scale of humanity and how our physical state relates to the world around us. Uh, and in, <laughs> in that same vein, um, before I came here, I did, as we were saying, we were working on, I was working on this video uh, of a new work called Tethered Maquette, which would be uh, extremely monumental. We obviously mentioned the renders earlier and that humanizing of scale that's present within them. But I decided at this point to make it physical. So with my 3D printer, I printed out a person. Uh, he's 30 centimeters tall. Uh, and I've since decided to call him Concrete Bob. That name is the name of Sir William McAlpine, who was a structural engineer and architect of the Glenfinnan Viaduct, which was a pioneering viaduct made from concrete in the 1900s, I believe. Sir William McAlpine was an advocate of concrete and hence the nickname Concrete Bob. 
The viaduct is massive. It's got this sweeping curve across the glen with these multiple large arches. And when I look at it, I do maybe understand that was maybe the point at which I started thinking about monumental buildings in the natural environment. It's a stunning contrast and juxtaposition that harmonizes. So Concrete Bob's a bit of a hero of mine and uh, I used him, I printed him to demonstrate how one can change the physical size of a sculpture with its relationship to our own physical state. So if you can demonstrate how it would relate to our physicality expanded, it's much easier than saying, imagine this if it were bigger, mm -hmm. because you can place, you understand your own physicality and you can place yourself within that space in relation to a concrete box. Also interesting talking about utility and beauty since the viaduct has mm. a very obvious mm. utilitarian, um, it's a railroad track. Yes. Um, so it has a very obvious um, function. Yeah. But as it runs through the natural landscape, it also becomes this wonderful sculptural mm. object at the same yeah. time. You talked a lot about beauty and um, this is something you usually find in nature. Nature both in its more physical or tangible forms and aesthetic expression, but also in its invisible forces and its spirituality. Primarily, uh, I think it's a question of dynamics and flows. I find the seasons fascinating, particularly as they seem to be shorter and shorter to me. I think they're markers to our own existence uh, and everything around us. It's rare if you go out and look that one thing is the same the day to, one day to the next. And I think it really is a marker of time. And I think time is so much a part of spirituality and certainly what it means to be human. The way this represents itself in landscape, of course, is through the creation of form, be it through wind or water, um, you know, freezing and thawing. These actions that take time form everything that we see. Within that, what I tend to find is curves. There's a lot of them, the meandering rivers, the flowing form of the downs, which is where I live, and the trees that reside around there, these areas as well. The prevailing winds force everything in one direction, and they have no ability to change that. And you get these sweeping sculptural markers of a lifetime, pressure, uh, an exertion upon what is obviously quite a strong resisting force. Nothing can really resist <laughs> nature, obviously, and that's something we face. We're facing a, a very large problem with today uh, that we haven't really, obviously, treated it very well. Partly, maybe that's because we've lost sight of how important it all is to us. The beauty of the natural world saved my life, in effect. I know it would be prescribed as a mental health tool for anyone suffering uh, from any kind of anguish. And these things just demonstrate how powerful it is. I've always felt that your sculpture was like a homage to your home, where you live, your environment. And, you know, you've always spoken so, so succinctly about beauty and nature and, and also the fact that it's impossible to capture or recreate. So you're just interpreting themes and forms and light sources that you have embedded in your brain since you've been spending so much time on the downs and you've been surrounding yourself 
And in some ways, I think that your own interpretation, I can see you as I, as I know you relatively well now, Hugh. I can see you as a human and your conquests and your challenges, but then your interpretation of nature. And I think that's what makes it so powerful and effective. There are two sculptures I've come into contact with over the last 48 hours. And one is Melania Trump, which was cut, it was carved out of a, a tree trunk. Yeah. In Slovenia. In, in Slovenia. The, in the province where she's from. Okay. It was her on the day that Donald Trump was inaugurated. So she's wearing that powder blue suit with powder blue gloves. And it's, it doesn't show much expression. It's quite stoic, minimal expression. And this was a, actually to honor her. And it came to a really untimely end because it was burnt down. Oh, no. Intentionally? It was burnt. It was, it was yes, arson. It was oh, arson, no. yeah. Somebody went and actually decided to burn the sculpture. So this celebration of Melania Trump's success has now become this kind of quite sad public sculpture, which is now going to be recast in bronze, apparently, so it's right. more permanent. And then today, I, I didn't know of Tracy Emmons. Do you know about this? The large sculpture that's being placed in Oslo? It's uh, of a woman... Um, Right. And it's going to be placed on, on a shoreline in Oslo. It's huge. Right, yeah. It's absolutely immense. And there was a really lovely um, quote that went with it. I can't remember right now what it is. But when I was thinking about those different works, very different spectrums, one carved in wood, one to celebrate Melania Trump, one to celebrate womanhood and femininity from Tracy Emin in two different complete scales and different materials and mediums. Mm-hmm. And then I think about your your purpose and modus behind your work you if you were to offer up one one real uh, tagline mm. for what the purpose of your work would be because if it's and this is a question which is difficult to perhaps answer but if mm. it's a reflection of nature and inspired by nature mm. and you'd like it placed outdoors ideally in a monumental scale to enhance and embrace environments do you see a purpose for sculpture that's non-political, that's purely aesthetic? There's a place for politics within art. Increasingly, this is not the public. Beauty, however, is we understand as human beings the power of beauty. All you have to do is look back to the cavemen to understand this. If you want a description of what a gazelle looks like when it's running, you look back to a caveman. And I think this demonstrates the importance of using beauty as a descriptive mechanism. And this, of course, has been done through religion and music and all of these other art forms that come to define humanity and culture. If one places a sculpture in an already beautiful surrounding, there's good justification for that if it draws the attention of the person. And in adding that beauty to the natural world, we can amplify uh, the space that is our home. It's to improve. Mm. It's to improve our lives. If that's what I can bring to people, then my time on this planet is of, of, of merit. To have this sculpture trapped in the gallery... <laughs> which which they um, they do look outstanding, but I do feel as though they need to be unleashed. And I do completely when I see your work placed outside, or at Canary Wharf, or some of the beautiful shots that you shared with us today uh, in gardens. And I, I think it it just uh, lends itself 
and elevates the experience. So I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I definitely see it as an enhancement of people's attention, as you say, but also the experience that you, you acquire in addition to the nature around your work. Mm. So we recorded a podcast when you joined the Gallery Hugh last year. And in that episode, you shared your artistic perspective and how your personal journey has impacted the work you do today. And it was a very revealing conversation, and I felt that you really exposed yourself truly as an artist. And at that time, we learned that you'd also been exploring new techniques like using VR technology in your process, which you've used quite recently to create Tethered Maquette, which you spoke about. And and this is a new work that's featured in your latest studio film, which you created for the gallery. And you mentioned that you might actually bring the VR with you to Sweden to give us a demonstration, which you have, and hopefully we'll get to see it after we finish the recording today. How important has this tool become to your process and what's the benefits for those who don't know much about creating moulds and beginning a sculpture? Uh, for me, uh, considering changing to using virtual reality or digital manipulation was something born from necessity. I was desperately aware that the physicality of my work was taking huge tolls on my body. Increasingly, I could see that my time doing this was becoming uh, shorter. Uh, I want to work until I die. <laughs> so um, the thought of doing anything else is not an option. So really, where I really got the, the idea that I could actually try this was when I saw a video of Bruce Beasley uh, extruding his curved sculptural forms in VR, like just really nearly. And I was like, okay, this is not what I'm doing, but I can see that if this is how he's doing this so freely, I've got to give this some consideration now. There was really only one way of doing this. I had to give myself no option but to succeed. So I got all of my means of making and all of the work that I had in the studio, and I got effectively a skip the size of a car. I don't know how I had that much stuff in my studio, because it's not very big, but I filled this skip with the previous trappings of my last 12 years' work and more, which was terrifying, quite frankly. Although clearing my studio out did feel timely, at least. <laughs> was then faced with a virtual reality headset and two handles with buttons on. Now, previously, I'm used to words like cutting, welding, you know, physical mm. actions, tangible stuff. And I'm in this world, and I'm now using words like geometry and mesh. Mm. And I was like, oh, what have I done? I can't do this. It doesn't work. Mm. But I knew I had to. Uh, and I committed to this. And fortunately, I've got a brother who's very good at computer-aided designs to tell me when it was absolute rubbish. So I, perceived, I, I persisted in this, and the term geometry is now something I've got quite good at. Uh, and really, my job is now managing geometry. The form follows on after that. As soon as I understood that my job was not sculpture anymore, it was geometry, and then geometry made sculpture, I was okay. After a year of this, of me standing in front of my hi-fi, wheeling around these 
things failing at 3D printing fairly badly. I got to the point where what I was making was the magic words watertight, uh, i.e. it doesn't have a hole in it. Mm. And uh, I was then able to print these things, which is marvellous because you can do something else whilst you have three machines working away in another room making a sculpture for you. This only gets me so far. Is this, is this satisfying compared to the old method? Do you, um, do you get the same kick out of it? I love the idea of there is a timely connection to sculpture of carving mm. and of making steel armatures. I grew up with more as my sculptural boyhood hero, Anne Hepworth. Mm. And, you know, you see more just get a bit of steel and bend that, mm. weld that, bosh and plaster on, you know, get it on there. <laughs> and it's so timeless, I think, in terms of historical content, particularly carving as well. Yeah. Like Melania. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My carvings are fairly uh, less desirable in terms of material and place. It's a bit more dirty. Uh, anyway, I, uh, so I think in some ways that was one of the awful fears about it was I'm a physical person. Mm. I, it's like my photography when I did it, I'm, the darkroom makes absolute sense, Photoshop, none at all. I, <laughs> it's tangible. And uh, I ended up in Photoshop, effectively. It was really frightening. And I was really glad in a way that I'd got rid of my means to chicken out um, of this because I think I would have done because I wasn't making any work. But the knock-on of that in persevering is that effectively what I'm doing is making highly accurate uh, armatures these days. They're not good enough to be to be sent to the foundry, but they're getting me a lot of the way there. Uh, and uh, I completed a very, very challenging piece of work in a month. So that was a week of virtual reality. Uh, and I say a month. I mean, the, the printers were going for three days, three of them. How long were you in the VR for over those how many hours would you say? Oh, uh, I would have spent at least five hours a day. Okay. So, you know, at least 15 hours. That must be exhausting. It is. Mm. But the brilliant thing is, is that a lot of what I do is decision-making. So there's 360 degrees. Mm. And if you turn it the other way, there's 360 degrees. So there's a lot of decisions that one can make. And I was making those decisions by adding and subtracting. So adding physically... Mm. Building up, subtracting. If it doesn't work, subtract, add, etc. This is hugely wasteful, not only in time, but one's physicality, mm. the amount that one has of that in a lifetime, mm. and waste, a reduction of waste by two-thirds, uh, which would be landfill. The reason why the VR is so exhausting, I think there is something strange about it visually. Mm. You're looking at a screen, two screens that are centimetres away from your eyes, and there's a disconnect. You can't grab something and pull it. Like You make an action, and it's disproportionate to your hands. Mm. So it's all a little bit for someone who works in terms of, I can touch this, I can feel it, I understand that form. Mm. That disconnect is disconcerting at best. 
but you can make months worth of decisions in days because you can alter it, turn it around. It hasn't worked. Scroll back through the history, see where it kind of looked like it was going to work and then go back, try something else. And that actually, because of all the things that I would normally be stressed about, waste my physical state and, and time, I would say overall it's a massive reduction in stress and energy. Would you see that more as a, des- a designer as, a, as opposed to a physical sculptor? Because ultimately you're making decisions which are reversible. And as you're saying, there's tangible elements to being a sculptor and this is a non-tangible digital experience. How do you see that implication that it's no longer... Because I know that you like control, Hugh. And, and ultimately, you know, you're giving the control over to tech. Mm. How does that feel? Do you still feel it's authentic? Recently, I had a young chap who I has, my work has inspired him, ask me how I would do something. Now, there's no way I was going to tell him, go and buy yourself a VR headset. Because it is with a, over a decade of bending, of carving, of feel, mm. of observ- observation, of surface, light, form, contrast, all of these things, I have the ability to forecast what it will look like. Ultimately, you're looking at an idea of light of a computer, and I look at it and I can say, if that form is how I think it is, I think that light is wrong. And when you you have to interpret that and there are other peculiarities and I'm still struggling. There is a disconnect between virtual reality and reality. I'm printing out things sometimes that are fooled me, that mm. when you get them physically in front of you, they don't, I haven't manifested them how I thought that would be. Now mm. that is a worry for me because that's what I do. That's my, my modus. You know, the piece of work in the video, I have no means of seeing movement of line and light and colour across the surface. It doesn't work like that. There, there is no means of simulating that. And when I do it, when I build these things, they're matte. So I can't see until I've made it reflective. Mm. And all of this is down to the physical experience. So I can think of it in terms of I would bend, if I want to make this form, I'll, I can bend a piece of steel that way and I can weld a piece of steel that way and I can join the surfaces. And in, in that same way, I think about, I've come to think about the geometry. So I suppose in some ways the argument is more, is a digital photographer a photographer? Even going back to Leonardo da Vinci, the idea of science, geometry, draftsmanship mm. and charms. Even if he was a scientist and he understood the phenomenon of balance and geometry, there was also an element of chance and expression in his work. And so somehow I see, I completely agree with you, your grounding and foundation with the physical and the understanding how material works, your knowledge, that's what makes your VR so successful. But without that, you just have geometry. I would not have done this without the work that's behind me. Mm because it's the work that behind me that says, like Leonardo, I can do this. Mm. I'm not just making it up. I have the idea some of them will work, some of them won't, but I can do them. Yeah. And I think if anyone wants to question my ability as a sculptor, 
from here on, I can always come back to I made these with the most basic tools in my hands. Because mm. the majority of the body of this work is with that very, the foundation of that. This, this is all my hands. Yeah, yeah. There may be some small mechanical element involved in that, a bandsaw, mm. a bit of orbital sanding, but mm. 95%, and that's being generous, is literally my hands and my brain. So. And I know, Eva, you want to talk about the videos a little bit more, but because when we felt, when we saw Hugh's most recent studio video, mm. even if you're using VR and even if you're using 3D printing techniques, the physicality in that latest studio film was intense, right? Yeah, it's, and as we see in the second film that you've made, you still mix um, the more digital techniques, VR, with the more traditional techniques. And what's especially fascinating, I think, in the video is the contrast between these two, um, going back and forth between these, um, you know, quite rough and large and loud things like sanding and plastering yeah. and buffing. And they're very, you know, big and loud in the space they yeah. occupy. And then at the same time, you have these like sketching on paper and using the VR that are quite small and precise yeah. and clean mm. in lack of a better word. So there's a push and pull between these very different um, modes of working. Mm. And how does that look for you, the push and pull? One of the best things about the VR is that it almost feels like a security blanket in the sense that if I'm going to dedicate my body to this for the next three weeks, uh, I know it's worth it. Mm. Um, because you're most of the way there. It's just you can't feel it. That If you could feel in virtual reality, then we would be 95% of the way there. I should imagine that will come in time. I believe people are working on force feedback gloves and that sort of thing. But I don't think I'll, I want to only take it so far. Well, we've talked about um, whether VR and digital how it is sculptural and how it is not. Or well, I've been thinking about how you're saying digital technology to make art about essential sort of qualities in nature and in human experience. That's a very interesting contrast and it's probably surprising to a lot of people. And I even think that the idea can seem quite strange to some, um, like you're straying away from nature by using mm. technology. <laughs> people tend to oppose tech and um, organic process. So what are your thoughts on these well, crossovers? <laughs> in terms of nature, I would like to think as I'm saving it <laughs> because the materials, as I spoke with Juliet the other day, uh, as much as there's the power involved in the printers, uh, that's really no different to using power tools or something like that. So mm -hmm. I'd say that balances it up. If an idea doesn't work in the physical world and I put it in the bin, it's compostable plastic. Uh, that is far better than getting a block of polyurethane, attacking it with various tools, filling bin bags of scrap polyurethane, uh, putting that in the landfill mm. to then decide, I'm sorry, uh, with all the best will in the world, I'm not going to finish it. So uh, my practice has certainly gained, I won't say it's got green credentials, but it's far better off in that way. And that's a huge, I mean, the last thing you want in the studio, in the back of your mind, 
is unhelpful or destructive worries. And when in my previous means of working, I just look at the bin filler and think that was today. And then I'd look at the bin filling up and think, right, that was another day. I cannot, with, with everything that I have to say about the importance of natural wealth, keep filling up bin bags at this rate. I can't do it. And that, and that was such a destructive and destructive force to my psyche. And I can say that one of the benefits of the VR is that I, there's still something I want to improve, and that will improve by my use of the digital well improving. Uh, but I'm certainly far greener than I was before, which is, uh, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, aspect that you don't often think about in terms of capturing experience of nature and how, mm. like the, uh, again, we talked about moving and um, touching, mm. um, how it's a completely different universe and you've sort of had to learn all over again how to act in a different universe with different right. movements. And how does it yes. translate? There is a means of it's uh, uh, the, the old world is very uh, slow and static. You know, you, you bend a piece of steel and it takes you some time and you cut the end off and you weld it to another bit and it wobbles about and gradually you build this dynamic, coherent thing. But if you want to have a laugh, you can. I mean, you can dance if you want in the VR. You know, if you, if you wanted to, it wouldn't be particularly practically useful, but there is that dynamic freedom of expression that can be gained the means of putting it in action is so freely available to one's body. Mm. So there is a dynamic that's available there that might not be otherwise, and particularly with the uh, absence of I'm worried about making a change because if, you have, if you're without that, you can be so much more expressive uh, and fluid. And I think uh, if you look at my work, it's, flu- it's fluid. It's in dynamics mm. is one of its defining features, and if you can get that out more freely. One of the things that has always inspired me in my life is people who have been able to compose and conduct symphonies, an incredible feat of mankind. I think one of the greatest. Sometimes I get the slightest inkling that I might be starting to feel a little bit like that in the sense that I have my string section, the wind section, and, then, mm. and I build it all together and it gradually comes in something. You know, my surfaces and lines uh, and the form and the, and the fluidity within that, they're all seeing. And, and I think that the, the shackles are removed from the physical world in terms of there's a limit to how I can actually bend that piece of stick, for example. And also it eliminates that fear of mistake or failure because you know that you can just revisit it and, and, and have iterations of what you did yesterday. There is a big challenge for eco-artists or artists that want to create but also leave very little damage behind them my, my artist Claire Celeste Borsch who had that wonderful biodiversity installation and now she's actually left her creative practice entirely to go and work for Plan A in Berlin which is a project to support environments she was having issues because she was doing all these beautiful paper installations but they were all printed or they were paper and then she tried creating them out of an algae uh, formula which was biodegradable and we had so many conversations about how the guilt around her practice, even though she was doing something that was ultimately working to bring attention to and draw attention to the way in which we were destroying our rainforests and our coral reefs and that dichotomy between being a creative person, there's going to be a surplus. You're going to leave a trail. 
is there any means of us realistically for any purpose justifying mm. the destruction of our home, which is what it is. And we are really guests here, I think. Mm. Every time I ship a painting, I have that same feeling. Mm. I don't want to send it in reused wrapping because yeah. that doesn't look good to the client. But ultimately, if, if an artist has wrapped it in plastic bubble wrap and a, a decent cardboard box, it's still fit for fight. I often feel like almost writing an email saying, I'm sending it, not because I'm cheap, not because I don't want you to have this, this Tiffany's experience when you open your beautiful box yeah. and unwrap it. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the fact that I unpack, rewrap, unpack, ship. And that footprint is not healthy just to own a piece of art or a painting. No. And so much is sanctioned. So many yeah. destructive practices are sanctioned in the name of art. Yes. And under the term art, a lot of mm. things and a lot of um, pieces and practices yeah, and I don't really want to get into it too much, but there is also human labour elements involved mm. in, in, in this. And I think uh, we need to make sure that everyone within the artistic economic framework is well treated. Well, thank you, Hugh, for agreeing to join us on this podcast recording. And it feels really luxurious to be surrounded by your sculpture and now to have you join us in the gallery this evening. Well, thank you, Juliet and Neva. It's been wonderful to, uh, to do this podcast with you and sit in the beautiful gallery. And I look forward to seeing people and talking about the work this evening. You can view all of Hugh Chapman's sculptures currently installed in the gallery on our website in the Into the Light digital catalogue. And I will be including links to Hugh's artist page. And both Hugh Chapman's studio films can be seen on the Nordic Arts Agency Instagram at the gallery and on our Vimeo channel until the end of June. So goodbye and thank you for joining us on this podcast. Goodbye.